Hey, I'm Omid Farhang, CCO Momentum. Today, my guest, Chris Beresford Hill, Chief Creative Officer of TBWA Shiat Day New York, whose clients include Adidas, Nissan, and Pepsi. Prior to joining TBWA in 2017, Chris served as ECD of BBDO, where he steered some of the agency's most lauded work in recent years for clients including Guinness, HBO, FedEx, and my personal favorite, Foot Locker. His early career was spent at Saatchi, New York, Goodby, San Francisco, and Modernista in Boston. He's been named to Ad Age's 40 Under 40 and Ad Week's Creative 100. His work has received all the industry's top honors for creativity and effectiveness, in addition to Ted's Ads Worth Spreading and Time Magazine's Best Super Bowl Ad of the Decade. He is one of the great young creative leaders and rising stars of the industry. This is Chris Beresford Hill and I talking to ourselves. You are actually a guy who... I'm interested in on a number of levels, but one of them is because I think a lot of us ad folk use Facebook uh, as a platform to basically promote our agency and promote our own work. And you are one of the last vestiges of of senior creative leaders who will still use Facebook to crack a joke, to maybe you know throw a little bit of shade at a brand uh, who you think maybe doesn't need to exist. As you're doing this, are you ever wondering about the fate of your career? Yeah, like right afterwards, <laughs> like anyone else. Like uh, I do like um, I do. I always saw Facebook as a place where um, in the beginning it was I didn't know. I don't, I, th- I don't think any of us knew what to do with it in the beginning, I think, because it used to say like I am. Mm-hmm. And then it was like a like a fill in. And people would always be like their, their status updates were like going to work or like washing my car. And then uh, and then one day the I am just disappeared and it was just a blank thing. Right. So I just started writing, you know, whatever came to my mind that was funny, and um, and I liked it, and I found I found a lot of satisfaction. In it. It was, it's a good place to like, you know, make fun of stuff. I feel um, like you're grandfathered in. It's like, in fact, the most important thing you can do is not have a lapse, because as long as you have a steady stream of one, you use it like right. a comedian a little bit. I think you kind of it's like I have a one liner. I don't think that this ladders up to like a bigger idea that I'm gonna, right? You know, I'm gonna meld into a script or something. But yeah. like the world should hear this and. Um, so it's kind of free material, and it, it's funny every time. That's nice. Some some are not. My wife will like let me know. She'll tell me if they're. <laughs> she's like a good. She has good taste, and she'll uh, she'll tell me that was not a good one. Yeah. Um, but I do think I, I I think twice now, for sure, because like I do like to make. I mean, I do as any advertising professional. I pay a lot of attention to ads, and there's a lot to make fun of. Yeah. Uh, and then you do think like, holy moly, like that that brand might even be in my network now. It's sort of nice. You're one of the last guys who is in my Facebook network who is like still genuinely willing to share a little bit of his personal self through right. comedy. And then I think you're right. It's you know you know who your audience is, and you know a lot of your Facebook friends are advertising people. And so you know either resisting the urge to not cross the line, even though it might be 25 percent funnier, or um, to not be cynical. You right. Know, yeah. Well, we um, one one of our clients at Shiat is the Recording Academy. And I mean, I was like that during this year's Grammys, I was, um, you know, I, you know, I, was, I don't think any of us ever need to see Sting perform ever again. Yeah. And I think he closed it. And uh, I think I kept my mouth shut about that. So, well, so th- this is where I got very gun shy. I used to be I used to be uh, very extroverted in social media. And then I went and worked at CAA. And one of the things I love to do is like, you know, make fun of a bad movie or make fun of a bad performance in an award show. And then it dawned on me that there's a 85% chance that any celebrity I'm making fun of is probably a CAA client. So you just right. can't say anything. And ever, ever since I left there, I could sort of never turn off that, that, that caution or that governor that was installed right. during that job. So, um, I guess we've started at the end. So now we're going to go back to the beginning. Okay. Got okay. it. Good. So, uh, where are you from? What did your parents do? I, uh, I'm from White Plains, New York. Uh, and my, Mother was a stay-at-home mom, and my dad was a teacher uh, turned headmaster. So he's been like an educator his whole life, and now he's retired from that, and now he has his own educational consultancy. Is he disappointed so, in you, no matter how good you do? You know— um, I imagine a man with a long ruler in his hand and, and small you know, spectacles. He is, he's like—like, like my name sounds fancy, and it sounds uh, British, but I'm actually Irish. Like, I'm not British at all. I'm Irish and Austrian. And my dad is— um, you think you think like a father who is like an educator would be a little disappointed with a kid who goes into like this kind of bastardization of the arts, but uh, my parents like love it. They think it's great because um, I think my parents are both kind of they're both creative people, and they I think they kind of live a little vicariously through this. 
but uh, I don't I don't have the the disappointed father uh, or the the scary father figure. Um, but I still am motivated. I, what's weird is like I like um, I still behave like the kid that has the father that never approved of him. But for some reason, like I get along great with my parents, and they like they're, they're super excited about whatever I'm doing. So. Well, yep. there were three Facebook friends I had that until I met them in person, I thought they were British. One, Joel Simon, founder of JSM Music. The second, your former boss, Greg Hahn. He just has the look. And third, I swear to God, until I met you 10 minutes ago, I thought you were a British dude. Really? It's weird because it's like I don't – I really think of myself as informal um, and I really don't think of myself as fancy. And I don't think if, if you know me, you, you would. Like I think I don't fit my name. Um, and sometimes like I do like when I meet people – um, people go around a table and people have these awesome, like, Farhang, like, what a cool last name. Uh, mine, like, I just I just say I'm Chris. And, like, when everyone else uses their last name, like, I for some reason I'm gun-shy and I don't say my last name because I don't like it coming out it's of my gonna mouth. It's going to throw people off. Yeah, it's, it throws me off, you know? <laughs> like, I think I'd be a bet. Like, Chris Hill's like, that's all right, I guess. It's not, yeah. not so memorable, but it already feels... Yeah, Chris Hill's a guy who, you know, in college, Chris Hill pukes in your shoes. It's fine. We love Chris Hill. That's right. Chris Hill loves, he goes to the free happy hours and, you know, Chris Hill's a good time. Beresford Hill feels, I don't know, see? just You're an everyman with a very regal name. Right. I guess so. Yeah. Yeah. So when did you become aware of advertising as maybe a thing you might like to do? Um, Pretty early on. I used to watch a lot of, I used to watch a lot of Nick at Night and I used to watch a lot of movies and stuff. And I always thought the character... Whenever there was a character or a dad, I guess at that time it was always a dad who was in advertising, it just seemed like something you wanted to do. Like I felt like there was some, there's a couple HBO shows. It might have been a show called Dream On where the guy was in yeah. advertising. It was just, it just seemed like um, in my like kind of mind, it just seemed like a bright, vibrant, colorful kind of a career. And then as I got older, I realized um, the kind of like, ability to create your own, uh, to create your own universe or come up with, uh, you know, ideas really quickly landed itself to that. So I just, I quickly, I quickly did the math and realized this thing that seemed really fun and interesting to me was also playing into my strengths. Yeah. So. Mine was crazy people with Dudley Moore. Do you remember? That was great. Yeah. They, uh, they deserve pens and we gave them, was it, we get, they deserve pens and we gave them cars. Yeah. I've told them, I've told the story before, but one of my favorite moments working in my maybe second year at Crispin Porter, I was, I was in a meeting with Bogusky. It was like a work review, and I was on his calendar to be in the next meeting. So there was, I just stayed in his office with him, and there was kind of this, you know, 30 second transitionary period. It was just he and I, and, you know, I was real super intimidated and quite, didn't quite know what to say and knew that he had an aversion to small talk. And before I could figure out something charming to say, he just leaned in and he goes, just apropos of nothing, just went, You ever see the movie Crazy People? And I go, Yeah, it was actually like a really important movie in my childhood. I've probably seen it. 50 times and he goes that's good you want to know the secret to advertising just make everything as much like that movie as possible wow <laughs> that's uh that's awesome he's a that guy is uh he's a legend i mean like in for, for my time coming up because yeah. i started in like, i want to say like 2002 and that was right when like cpb kind of lit on fire riley tells chance. riley tells some story about you uh, interviewing as a young whippersnapper yep. and, and then making a huge mistake, either not hiring you or maybe you turned down a job. What happened there? I wish. God, I wish. No, they, I, um, so I was living in Boston. I was working at this cool agency called Modern East, which was, I mean, they did really great yep. stuff. And that's how I got my start. They, they gave me a job without a portfolio and, um, and they taught me tons about the craft of writing. I think I, I learned a lot there, but the stuff coming out of CPB was like, like I loved what I was doing in Boston, but there, then there was this like thing in Miami and they were, you know, making, it felt like you guys were making, even at that time, anything but ads. You were making stuff on the web when people weren't doing content on the web. Uh, you were like getting into packaging, you know, there's all this awesome stuff happening. So I wrote, uh, I figured out the the email format at CPB. I think it was like first initial last name uh, at cpbgroup.com. So I, I just started writing uh Bogusky emails. And I think I, uh, I finally wrote them one that just said like, have the rest of my twenties. And so I followed up and they were like, I don't know, like it's kind of up to Alex. And so I followed up with, with Riley and with Keller cause I met with them both and they both were like really responsive to me and, and really uh, nice. And they're like, I don't know, it's kind of Alex's call. So I didn't get it, but I kept in really good contact with both of them. And they both like, were definitely very kind and they definitely indulged me cause I probably, um, I don't know, 
if they needed to spend a lot of their day like emailing with a junior copywriter from Boston, <laughs> but like they, but I felt like I would write them and they would write back and I would, you know, I try to make it interesting for them. I try to like show them work or ask them a, a provocative question or something. Um, but both of those guys really like kept in touch with me. And so I feel like, uh, so I feel like I know Rob now from that and the same with Andrew. Yeah. He still talks about you like the one that got away. You ended up giving at least a portion of your twenties after working at a couple different places to BBDO, you were there for eight years? Yep, eight years of BBDO. Yeah, and so you worked closely with David Lubars, who's been on this show, and I had a chance to spend an hour with him, and I'm not sure I got any closer to him in that <laughs> hour than when we started, but definitely a fascinating guy and, and yeah. someone who's, whose career I've admired. Give me a little bit on, on your eight years working with David. I don't want to speak in absolute, and I've worked for a lot of great people, but uh, I mean, he's probably the best boss I've ever had just because um, when you're with him, when you're, when you're on his team, um, you know, when you're one of the clan at BBDO, like he really cares. Like he cares so much about the agency. And he, you know, I think on the inside you realize like like he's curt and he's pretty intense. So I think in the outside world that feels one way. But when you're working with him, he's super intense about the work, super passionate about it, super supportive um, and working with him is like really familial, like it's really personal, you know, um, you know, when you go in and talk to him, it's, it's about how's your family and how are things and, 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 you know, I've gone into him and showed us some stuff and the work wasn't there yet. And it's not, you know, it wasn't like catching you out on it. It was like, uh, I don't know. I don't know, Chrissy, you know, it's not, not quite there yet. And you're like, I know. And you talk to him about how you can make it better and stuff. It was a real, like, it's like really nurturing with him. But I think on the outside, you wouldn't, you wouldn't know that if you weren't there. Yeah. Um, but he's always been incredible. And he's also like, um, I think he's, I mean, he never talks about how busy he is, but I just know he's tremendously busy. But if you, if you email him any question or anything, um, he will, he will get back to you within like half a business day. And he's like, he doesn't, he doesn't need to chew things over. Like he'll, he's decisive, which is like, if you have a boss that's not decisive and, and will like, uh, like be wishy-washy or waffle on stuff, like that could be really frustrating. And I think, it's probably easy to do as a boss, but David is also very like, you know, he would, he would align with you on a course of action. Like that was it. Yeah. Um, which is a great thing I learned from him is just to be decisive and just make as many decisions as possible. What's it like going into his office and telling him you're moving on? What's that conversation like? A little scary. Yeah. Um, it was, you know, because TBWA is Omnicom and so is BBDO. Um, I actually, it's actually the least conventional departure you've ever heard. Uh, I, I found out that there was an opportunity at TBWA, and I found out that my name had been tossed around, but I was a but I was a no go because I was BBDO, and they don't take from brother and sister don't mess with each other. Mm-hmm. So actually, I uh, I reached out to someone and said I heard you know I heard this opportunities you know I heard my name was brought up and I'm really interested in it because I love I mean I really love the Shia brand, and I got kind of on the other end of the line. Uh, we can't uh, we really can't talk to you. You know, if you want to talk to us, you got to talk to David. And um, I don't know what I'm a I'm a crazy person, I guess, because I just I went in and I talked to him about it. And I said, you know, hey, David, I just I found out about this opportunity to try it. And I'm, you know, part of me really wants to explore what the next step is. And I really love that brand. And I was wondering if you'd be supportive of me if I if I, you know, engaged in a conversation. And he was he was really great about it. I mean, we talked about it kind of from the perspective of my best interests, not you know, not, it wasn't really about like retention. It was kind of, it was, he kind of jumped into like a, like a, like a father-like kind of um, yeah. presence on it. And after eight years, you would hope you've earned that. You know? Right. And I, but I was pleased because I think the industry is weird. I mean, you know, you hear stories about someone who, you, you know, resigns and then they get, you know, chased out of the building. And, and it's like, you know, everybody, I mean, almost everybody's had a few jobs. Almost everyone that will flip out on someone that resigns has resigned, has poached from another agency. But people kind of they forget that. Before we move on from BBD, I did want to I did want to ask you about the work a little bit. Among among other accounts, you ran Foot Locker. Uh, I said you did some of the work that I, I've really admired over the past several years, and you worked with a lot of celebrities: mm-hmm. uh, Manny Pacquiao, Carmelo Anthony, James Harden, Russell Westbrook. If you would, would you name me an athlete who was surprisingly pleasant to work with? And an athlete, if you dare, that sure. was surprisingly unpleasant to work with. I would dare. I absolutely would <laughs> dare. Um, the shocking thing is uh, I've talked to people who, like, worked uh, worked on Nike stuff at Wyden, you know, in the 90s and early 2000s. 
And their stories about athletes were crazy, you know, about this guy would, you know, wouldn't show up. Uh, and then the next day, you know, he'd show up, wouldn't leave his trailer and you know, all these kind of crazy stories. Um, we started doing athlete commercials in maybe like 2012 for Foot Locker. Yeah, I think about 2012. Um, these guys are so well managed. They don't mess around. They show up on set that the Foot Locker clients, a woman, they call her ma'am. Um, you know, they like they're on time, like they have their it's not their sports agent. It's not their Bob Sugar. It's like they have a whole endorsement marketing agent. And uh, that person's like right with them side by side. I couldn't believe it. Nobody was a jerk. Like literally nobody was a jerk. Some people were quicker to want to get out of there. Uh, the best one, I'm trying to think of the, the, the less best one. The best one, though, is Harden. Like because he was like James Harden was. Um, we picked him to go into a script like the in the very first pitch of the celebrity campaign. I hadn't been watching the NBA at all. Like I, I was I lapsed. It was like right around the time of the lockout and it just wasn't a sport that was on my radar. And so I put on ESPN and I was just watching highlights and I just saw the, the beard and I was like, that guy's awesome. He looks awesome. So we wrote him into the script and um, we were his first ever commercial. He was, I mean, I'll say it, he was super wooden. I mean, really wooden. I mean, it was it wasn't just line by line. It was like word by word. We had to massage it out of him before we could move on. And then over the course of the Foot Locker relationship, you know, my partner Dan and I probably did, I don't know, like 15 plus shoot days with him. And by the end, it really was like he would show up and he would just do anything. He just trusted us because yeah. I think we'd helped kind of at that point in the, you know, now he's the face of Houston and he's really responsible for a lot for them. I think they rely on him a lot. But when we picked him up, he was a sixth man. Um, he didn't have like the media training of the other guys like the Durant and the Westbrook. And so we, I think, I think he recognizes that we helped kind of give him or bring out his personality. And by the end, he was like, there was no joke. We, we could ask him to do anything and he just wouldn't think twice about it because he had the trust in the, in the brand and what, we, what, what we'd done for him. Um, so he was amazing. And then, um, you know what, the only, uh, the, no one was really, no one ever really resisted what we were trying to do with Foot Locker. I think everyone was pretty cool. Uh, I will say that D Rose kind of did live up to reputation and, uh, we did wait for about eight hours for him to show up for 30 minutes. And that was yeah. like the only time that ever happened. And, I guess those days are maybe over. Like they really are the days of, you know, athletes being divas and and showing up a half a day late and, and being cantankerous. And by the way, it probably aligns with, you know, our predecessors used to show up drunk to work. That's true. And, you know, rock star creative directors. And like now we do CrossFit and drink green juice as part yeah. of our regimen. So um, they've changed and we've changed. And I know. It's probably, it's probably for the best. There was no Internet. It was probably must have been so easy, right? Oh. Just bang out some scripts and play golf. <laughs> Did you do the Tom Brady spot? Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. That must have been... That must have been the big, they all had really huge responses, but I would have to think that was the gold standard. That was a big one. There was like a few, there's probably like five or six times where, you know, you, you know, I think we're, we, the Foot Locker campaign came out at a really unfair time for us in terms of like, like Sports Center is the most famous sports campaign, like long running humor campaign, in my opinion. Yeah. But um, the, that came out before there was like a million sports blogs and a million sneaker blogs. And we had this, like right when the campaign really popped is I think the peak of like Bleacher Report tweeting, you know, 50 things a day. So it would, there would, we would sometimes put out a spot that we weren't even sure was that good and it would just pop on the internet because there's so many sites that were constantly aggregating all the sports content and kids love this. I mean, they love seeing stuff with athletes. Um, the Brady one was big. The Pacquiao one was really big. Yeah. Um, but they were, I mean, we, there's really surprising ones. Like we did a, we did something with Shaq and Tyga, and we just woke up in the morning and it had like 7 million views. And you're like, really? That one? Yeah. So, I mean, it's it's fun. I mean, it was so joyful working on things where you knew there was like a real consumer interest. Like you knew kids were going to be interested in it. Um, well, and the they were successful based on what I would think you would find to be the most satisfying type of advertising to make, right. which is like, you know, self-aware Yep. and, you know, sort of. Making, making fun, fun of shit. Making fun of shit and making, making fun, fun of, of itself. Blake Griffin, you know, right. being the, what was it, like the advert? The endorser. He was plugged into the yeah, endorser. the endorser 2000. Because we were, we, we resisted. We were, um, my partner Dan and I got the brief and, and they the clients had, had signed Blake. And we were, I think we were like a little miffed about it because we were, at that point, we were probably, I don't know, five, ten ads into this camp, this celebrity campaign. 
And we were like, but that, you know, he's like, he's so played out. He was in, you know, five commercials at the time. He was in a fast food thing. He was in a video game thing. Um, so when we worked with the team, uh, that was the brief. It was like, do a joke about how he's in too many commercials. So yeah. it was like, and the clients were cool with it. They loved it. So you, you started at TBWA just about a year ago. Is that right? Yep. Nine months. Um, and you brought up Jerry Graff, um, you know, who held that, that same position right. at TBWA, as CCO of New York. You know, you go into the agency and you want to bring, um, you know, you have some ideas about winning values and winning culture, but you also know it's an agency that has a long track record of success. Do you ever sort of feel the pull of Lee Clow, even though I know he's not involved in your day-to-day work or the ghost of yeah. Jerry Graff uh, as you try to kind of forge your own legacy here in yeah, this first year? for sure. I think the, you know, the, in some ways it, it feels like we are, we, we've been like a startup and I joined kind of a startup, certainly a reboot, <clears throat> but the but the values and certainly like what, what Cloud taught and what is constantly executed uh, by Apple is like, it's in the walls, you know? Um, you know, we have a my boss uh, and my predecessor, Chris Garbett, who's the, the worldwide chief creative officer, you know, he's he's really good about like defining what shy it is, what great shy at work is and, and, and how we want to show up in culture. So so on one hand, we we have like a startup thing going in New York, but on the other, like we really do know who we are. Um, you know, Rob Schwartz is the CEO and he's been with Shiat for 25 years and he was, he was, he led creative in LA before he became a CEO in New York. Um, and then the MD, Nancy Reyes, who, uh, ran Goodby New York and I worked with her at Goodby San Francisco is, is also one of the most creative, uh, account people I've ever worked with. So between Rob, Nancy and myself, we're all really aligned and we have this good North star about what, you know, great Shiat work is, is if you look at the best stuff, it's it shows up in culture. Um, it's really simple and it's and it's really beautiful. It's really well crafted. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the thing that I've really thrown myself into and the thing that's been eye opening is the craft, because I think everywhere else I've worked um, has been really idea driven. But I don't think I've seen a place that's obsessed uh, as much with how beautiful everything can be. So that's changed me. So I've kind of gone in there, not like doing my thing, but kind of being like I need to I need to up uh, you know up my game when it yeah. comes to how things look and the aesthetics of everything. It's a great challenge. I mean, you come from BBDO after eight years, there are certain things that are ingrained in you right. about what is fundamental to getting to great work. Um, going from, from BBDO to Shiat and, and even with some of your previous experience at Modernista and elsewhere, is what you're finding that there's sort of a way and a creative culture that gets to great work or that maybe there are many ways and many creative cultures that can get to great work. Well, I think, I'm sure you, tell me if you've had the same experience, but I learned early on as a creative director that it wasn't, so as a creative, my my goal was to obviously build my book and do the best work I could, but I really felt like I was trying to please my boss. You know, I really wanted the CD to see work for me and say, okay, he's got, you know, he's got me taken care of, like that's going to the meeting. I, I wanted to be, you know, I wanted to be the best I could be and I wanted to please. And then when I became a creative director, um, I quickly learned that like every creative works differently. You know, some people, you know, bring you big ideas in little paragraphs. Some people like to meticulously make decks. And, uh, you know, I learned that you don't, um, I shouldn't tell people like, this is how you present me an idea. I mean, the idea is every creative is its own instrument and you've got to get the best music out of it. Um, so I've learned that, that there's no one way at all. It's really just looking at what you've got you know, what your challenge is and what you've got and then trying to trying to make the best music out of it. Yeah. You're you know? managing way more teams now. Yeah. How how fundamentally is your day different as CCO at Shiat than it was as ECD at BBDO? Um, really, really different. Um, you know, I think there's a lot. I'm really, I'm interested in the management of, of an agency and the building of a, you know, kind of uh, how business works, you know, how we're all going to survive in the future and all that stuff. So I, so I don't like... Any of the personnel stuff, any of the like CCO businessy stuff, I like, um, and I'm enjoying that. Um, and then obviously the the time you can spend mulling over the creative is truncated. Um, so I do miss like having my only challenge during the course of the day being a creative problem. But do you find yourself being in meetings like where an HR matter needs to be addressed that in your previous role you right. know, would have been handled without the need for you in the room, and you kind of have to 
you, you have to remind yourself in those moments, like you don't get to be annoyed right now and you don't get to roll your eyes and like, this is what you signed up for. Right. This is the job that you said that you wanted. Yep. I mean, do you do you find yourself having to give yourself that pep talk? No, because uh, I'm a, one thing about me is I'm not I'm not a big complainer. Whatever situation I'm in, I tend to just be in it and and not uh, and not be like it's not supposed to be this way or like I'd be happier if I was doing this. I um I like you know what I think I'm really and truly ADD and I think um, I think having all these things going on and shifting focus and getting pulled into you know a personnel thing and then getting pulled into a new business thing and then getting pulled into a big review of some work. I think I like that. Yeah, I mean I think when any agency takes a shot on a first-time CCO, right. you know, the the presumption is you're going to be able to come in here and just like at your old job, there's decks up on walls and there's creatives in search of answers and there's meetings that need to go great and there's, you know, creative decisions that need to make good work great. And we know you know how to do that and you can walk into the front door and help make the work better tomorrow. And in exchange for your ability to do that, we're going to be patient with you while you figure out all the other stuff that comes with the job. Um, how has that learning curve been for you? Are your partners you know, merciful uh, with their patience? And, and was that something that you discussed with them before taking the job? Um, it was discussed, but not not at great length. Like I do think, I do think people said- Should have talked about it a little more. <laughs> I, think people, I think people said, I think people said uh, you know, we like them, like let's do it. Because yeah. um, I, I don't think anyone, no one asked me, uh, you know, and ask me those questions that are like, are you serious? Do you care about the business? Uh, maybe I was just serious enough when we were talking that they knew. But uh, no, my, my partners, the, the ELT in New York are really, you know, I, I think the agency is, is prime for success. Like there's really great people. And I think we just haven't quite, like we're, we're just not quite there yet with the work. So I think their goals and my goals are really aligned. Like I think everyone wants to be a great agency because we're, um, you know, I think everyone on the ELT takes pride in yeah. um, in in the work. So everyone is like super. Are you okay? Do you understand? Do you have everything you need? Like I, I do feel like um, you hear stories about like the creative person being against everybody, uh, and I feel more like I, I'm always telling people, "Don't worry, I'm fine. Like I've got yeah. it." You know, like I think they would probably um, say the same thing. That they're just like they're trying to be as supportive as possible. Um, cliches are cliches for a reason, but I think I find, and it's what you're saying too, that like everyone's worried about the, you know, temperamental creative. And in right. fact, they learn that the creative like is more on their side in the service sure. of running a great business than they realize. And at the same time, we have the cliche that our, you know, our account partners and finance partners sort of, you know, don't have a creative bone in their body. And, and that's an anachronism too. Like, you, you know, at the end of the day, what they're invested in is the best possible output. And just like us, they want to share great work with their high right. school friends and go, look what I do for a living. And yeah. Um, so I think once you start to break down some of those cliche barriers, that's when it, the, the partnership starts to get a little bit more fun. It's, you know, I've always thought of it that way. Like I've, I, I've never really subscribed to that adversarial relationship between, you know, like the, the suits and the creatives. Um, it's never benefited me. I always found like the closer you get with your account team, uh, the, the, the better. And the best feeling ever is like, I love um, when I hear people at Shia talking about some of the work that we've had coming out. Um, you know, I've heard strategists and account people talk about like, like my campaign or our work or, you know, this thing I worked on. And just like, I want everyone to take possession of it. Yeah. Um, you know, it's the, to me, it's the biggest differentiator between the small handful of the great agencies in our industry. Right. And the large majority that, you know, I don't say it, I don't say it pejoratively, but I, you know, it's, it's a tough business. And, and I think mediocre agencies are the result of, I think at every agency, the creatives all pretty much want the same thing. They want to make great things right. to put in their reels. Um, but what does everyone else want? You know, what does the account person want? What does the strategist want? What does the finance guy want? If the right. finance guy is going like, yeah, you know, I, I got this job at an agency, but I could just as well be working at an insurance company or a bank. And it's it's mm -hmm. roughly the same job. I have to make the numbers add up. Um, it, that's a mediocre agency. When the finance guy feels as vested, I think it's, it's again, I, I think it's easy for a strategist or an account person to go like, well, I carried, I carried the water. I did my job. You know, I carried right. the baton for the portion that it belonged to me. Um, but that's the that's a hard thing to to either train or retrain people. Right. It's like you may not be on set, you may not be in the edit, um, you may not be necessarily even the one collecting the award. But like you have to feel like that 
all of that belongs to you, even though you're not there every step yep. of the way, you know? Absolutely. Um, so part of your new job, there's expanded responsibilities. Part of your new job is managing more creatives. Another part of your new job, I'm going to assume, is uh, more public speaking. You have to address right. the creative department more. You have to address the agency more. Uh, what was your first day like? Did someone hand you a mic? Did it go well? I think it went well. I don't know. It was kind of a blur. So maybe, maybe I'll maybe start not. by telling you they handed me a mic on my first day, and I looked back and I was like, "What the hell was I talking about?" Because it's hard. It's sort of a. It's like you you have 15 minutes. Are you going to tell everybody everything about yourself, right. all your ambition? Do you come in a little too strong uh, or do you come in a little subdued? And both of those, you know, have pros and cons. Which, which style did you sort of bring into your first I was, agency? I was really, con- I was conscious about coming in too hot. Yeah. Uh, Cause I think that, I mean, that's, that's a setup for, for disaster when yeah. you talk any kind of a big game. Uh, and I obviously didn't want to be low energy. Cause I think the whole, um, you know, part of um, me going there was, um, you know, I think they wanted someone who was going to come in and have a bit of attitude, you know, bring a little bit, bring a little bit of the Facebook posts to the, to the, uh, to the workplace kind of just create some, <laughs> create a bit of energy. Um, but it was, it was weird. Cause it's, you know, I, I, I came into the agency and I feel like I know a lot of people in New York and a lot of people in the industry. And I didn't know, uh, I didn't personally know one single creative. So I really did, you know, come into a brand new experience, um, Again, I, I'll say that that my partners, uh, Rob and Nancy, kind of held my hand and made me feel really comfortable about day one. Yeah. Um, but I did I did address the company for like sixty seconds. Uh, I just talked about being really uh, excited to be there and uh, a promise to to uh, to really serve the work and uh, but also to put on everyone that we're gonna um, be hard on the work, uh, but we'll be good to each other. God, I should have talked to you before I did mine. That's way better than what I said. What did you say? Well, mine was just longer. And the longer you talk, the worse it's going to get. So, Certainly for me. Yeah, you were smart. That's my, you, kept, well, that's you, kept my... it, you kept it short and tight. And that feels uh, like it has a point of view without anyone who disagrees with what you just said should should quit their job and like go do something else. But I do. I mean, I'm. but once I do start talking, it does it. it it rambles. So yeah. it's like, especially with, in front of a big group. So I'm working on that. I do, uh, I do feel like there is more of a responsibility to... Um, talk to group. I mean, we do town halls every couple of months and I get up in front of the whole agency and it's like, it's not super easy for me, but it's getting easier. Yeah. Well, I mean, um, there's, a, there's a contradiction you have to reconcile when you first take the mic in front of an agency or a department, which is like, well, if everything was going perfect, I wouldn't be here. So some change was required and I represent that change, but it doesn't mean that you all suck or that you're doing a bad job. And in fact, there are people who might have worked here for 10 years and let this represent like the turning of a page in your career where, you know, you're getting a new job without having to leave this one, you know? And so right. I think those are, you know, those are two conflicting thoughts that it takes a right. lot of finesse to, to walk that line. You know, I think it's in the case of, in the in my case at Shiat, it was, it's actually the business is, is actually doing really well and they're really good people there. It was just one little, you know, missing piece, really right. someone day to day to just be obsessed about the creative because my, my predecessor is is the worldwide creative president now, worldwide CCO, Chris Garbett. So right. he was on the road a lot. And I think what they needed was someone to come in, uh, you know, work with Chris, but just be there every day, right. you know, walking around, checking on work, following up on stuff. Um, because it's, you know, like, a you know, I'm sure you have this experience with your teams. It's like a creative part. It's like a, it's like a garden, you know, you've got to really like constantly be watering it, you know, trimming things and organizing stuff and just have a, a vision for it and keep it because if you walk away from it for too long, it'll, you know, get all weird and overgrown or certain things. It's a great metaphor, actually, because yeah. the other part of that metaphor is and just when you sit back in your barca lounger and go, the garden is now perfect. You've missed the point of what a garden is. It's yes. like it, it requires constant maintenance and attention and love and care. And the second, you know, you take three extra sips of lemonade, the grass has grown a little too tall and, and you've missed something important, you know? So it's, you have to sort of love, you have to love the, the, the part of the job that where you just keep coming back. Not being hard headed, but just when someone says, no, find another way, we can't do this for the budget. Well, let's try this approach there. Uh, you know, they may want to do this, but there's another focus. Well, let's focus on the other thing, make them happy as long as they promise to entertain the thing we love. It's, it's about finding ways. Because I think it's really, I think the natural order of things is for 
less to happen. Right. Or certainly the natural order of things is is uh, unless someone is really pushing for the for the best creative, that that stuff will fade and you'll you'll go to mediocre. There's so many good reasons to say no to something. Sure. Yeah. yeah. And it's uh, uh, but that's I think that's the fu- I think that's the challenge is how do you um, I think you know, every agency has great ideas on the walls. It's, it's who's, who's moving the units, who's making it happen. Yeah. I think that's the real challenge. Yeah. Have you had your Lee Cloud moment yet? Nope. I hope to, I've never met him, you know, so I've, uh, I, I would like to, uh, I think, uh, I think you got to go out to LA to see him. I don't think he's coming by New York. You got to just email him and go, I'm planning to give you my forties. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, what's one part of, the new job unrelated to the creative process or the work that maybe you're surprised that you're enjoying more than you thought you would. I, um, I tend to really like whatever I'm working on, whatever I'm doing, I tend to be really, or at least when I was a creative, I would be really focused. If I was working on an assignment, um, you know, I'd go get lunch by myself cause I'd stay in the zone. I'd be thinking about it the whole time. Um, but I figured out pretty quickly in this job, you know, you have to be super present in every interaction, every meeting, because people are, are looking to you. Um, and uh, I found that um, walking around and talking to everyone, I'm, uh, I love it. I love, uh, I love doing the rounds. I love checking on everyone, what they're working on. I know what I seem to have this ability I didn't know I'd have to, to instantly call up what every single creative is working on. And, um, and I just didn't think I was as, you know, I didn't think of myself really as a man of the people. Like I thought, I care about my uh, creatives. I've certainly cared about all the teams that, that I've worked with in, in my career, but I actually really do love just talking to everyone about what they're doing and try to like get in on it and, and get excited about it. Yeah, it's it's the most important. Anytime you get asked uh, career advice from anybody, I mean, I feel like the number one thing, no matter where you're at in your careers, do something where you feel at least slightly in over your head because right. you're going to discover things about yourself and talents about yourself. It's actually what I love about this business. Like you're good at coming up with ideas based on that. You're being given this completely unrelated responsibility of right. talking to clients or, you know, and only upon doing them, do you find out whether or not you have any aptitude for it or not. And like, you're now at the sort of next level of that, where it's like, you know, only upon meeting with, you know, volumes of teams that you never have before or having conversations with account people and finance people that you've never had before. Do you find out whether you're good at it, whether you enjoy it? Yeah. And you might, you know, in some cases, people in these roles find out that they they're better at that part than the part that got them hired in the first place. Yeah. I mean, I would like to I would like to think that I mean, I certainly feel uh, really like really invigorated by this whole thing, by coming to work and and knowing that I don't know, you know, as opposed to. uh, I've got four reviews. We got three accounts we're working on. Like you, you kind of know how that goes. And I know at the end of the day, I got to deliver a meeting with the best work possible. But this job, I, I don't know what's going to happen on any given day. And I find that really, I, I do find that exciting. Um, and I, li- I love the learning curve, yeah. you know, because it has me, you know, super alert and present and stimulated. Yeah. You come into the industry as a CCO at a time when ideas um, are more important than form factor Mm -hmm. and great ideas can take many forms. Um, You're a writer and a storyteller at heart and, and our industry is putting a lot of emphasis on tech and on innovations and you've made a lot of that. But um, now that you're seeing more volumes of work, do you ever feel like you're sort of begrudgingly incorporating uh, tech into an idea or, or putting tech into the world that is posing as an idea rather than servicing an idea? No, I don't, you know, I, it's cool. I don't think we're, I don't think we're chasing platform hacks just to chase platform hacks. Right. I think if anything, you know, uh, I think, I'd like to think that we're, we're trying to push our clients uh, onto platforms and, and into new places. But again, I, I like, I like all the, the, the change and the variance because there's no, you know, if it's only TV and radio, there's potential mastery. But because we don't even know where the stories are going to pop up next, it's I, I like that no one no one knows exactly how to do it. I mean, people claim they know how to do it, and people claim that if you show a wide shot in the first three seconds, and if, you know that's that that's some recipe. But I don't think. But when it comes to like the best idea, nobody knows how to do it because you know it hasn't been done yet. We don't know where it's going to go. I found in my first three years that like I'm, I used to have a certain ease with clients, and I was sort of welcome with clients. Right. Um, 
and they 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 liked the idea before they even heard it. I think now in the new role, I find myself with more CMOS, and they're they're tougher to sell, and they're tougher to crack, and they're um, they're smart. They're the smartest person in the room a lot of right. times, and sometimes that will take you out of your confidence. Or sure, like, you know, like it's sort of like it's sort of like pours cold water on the superpower that you thought you had. Um, so that's a, that's just a personal thing for me. That's not true of everybody. I had Jamie Robinson in here from Jones. She's like, no, I fucking love CMOs. Like, <laughs> are, you, are you finding more interaction with CMOs intimidating? Does it change the job for you at all? Yeah, it definitely does. I mean, I think the I think CMOs right now are under like more pressure than ever too because CMOs have all the data and the CEOs want the data. So it's like, it's it feels like, I mean, it feels like as people like you and me are higher up in the business, it also feels like the business has gotten more serious. Um, but I think, you know, my, my superpower with clients has never been a great showman. I'm always a a really good listener and I think I can always kind of find our common goals, uh, and frame everything up with that. So, so I like talking to the CEOs because I like listening to the CEOs. Um, I find, you know, the more a client, uh, at any level will talk to you, the more they'll tell you what they want. The more you let them talk, you'll understand what their real needs are. Uh, so, so I like it, um, because it does, I mean, those meetings do help me decipher right from the horse's mouth what, what we really have to do in order to make something happen. Yeah, I mean, so. it's the great misconception of like the Don Draper speech. Sure, the, the the giant, you know. It's uh, like actually like you're going to get kicked out of the room. Can Are you able to shut up and listen to this person right. and be a partner to this person before you open your mouth? Have, ask the right question before you presume to have the right answer. Yep. I, will be, I will be infinitely more comfortable uh, uh, asking, um, asking a client a question, uh, hearing their response and then riffing with them, uh, infinitely more, more than, um, a great deck of work right behind me. Yeah. I'm just way, way more comfortable in the moment with them than I am being staged and being scripted. So I, I like, so the more client time I spend, actually, the, I do find I get a lot out of it. Yeah. Do you, you know? ever, do you ever withhold an idea in a riffing session? Cause you know, it will feel more special if you like, roll it out over three slides in a deck the next time. Oh, no way. No way. I'm like, uh, I'm like Roger Rabbit with the the shave and a haircut. Like if I, if I have a good idea, you know, I'm shouting it out. I've always been like that. I'll be, you know, I used to, you know, I'd be in a meeting with a client, me as a copywriter and Jeff Goodby as the creative director and the client will say something and I would just, I would hear it and then I would spit back an idea and the client would like it. And I'd be like, did I just, uh, did I just, creative direct my own did i just say an idea to a client without getting it approved by jeff yeah but i but i can't resist i think that's the that's my favorite part is when you get in a flow you know and that's how that's how dan and i did a lot of our you know a lot of the footlocker meetings would you'd go in with with some work and you know you know our clients had a really stanky taste they were like they loved it or they were like get out of here and that made that made the relationship really fun because it was the gloves were off it was if they didn't like it they would tell us they would tell us they hated it and then we would haggle and argue, and somehow we would come up with a, a brand new idea right in the room. Yeah. What uh, dawns on me about your work, and it's it's most true of the Foot Locker work. I've always had this idea of like when you're doing reviews of work with teams, there's a lot of uncomfortable laughter, but look for the real laughter. And sometimes sure. the real laughter is like something snarky or snide. But if it's a real laugh, you might be onto something. And yeah. as you explained that that Blake Griffin thing, like that might have started as like, man, fuck this Blake Griffin thing. We yeah. don't. It's like you know who else thinks he's overexposed in advertising? Blake Griffin. Yeah. So you know you've said something true, and it's led to a true laugh. And then can you follow the truth? Yeah. yeah. No, you have to like you got to find a find a vein to tap into. You know, you really um, like, and it definitely. I don't think you know. I certainly don't have the emotional maturity to, uh, you know, be given bad news and immediately flip it into like the positive, but the process, you just talk about it. You yank, you, you crank about it a little bit. And then all of a sudden you, you find yourself somewhere. Talk to me more about your emotional intelligence. Are you, (laughs) uh, do you wear disappointment on your sleeve? Are you, uh, are you good at keeping up appearances around new creatives when things don't go your way? Oh yeah. Yeah. I'm not, you know, I like, I'm, it's interesting because um, I am an emotional reactor, but I'm so, I, I know I'm an emotional reactor, so I, I keep myself in check. So, so whenever something, whenever we get delivered horrible news, I've, n- I never respond with anger. You know, some people like, you know, the client killed the campaign yeah. and some people immediately say, you know, fuck that, that's, that's bullshit. And this, I, because I know what that loss of control feels like for myself and how much I don't like it, I completely skip it. Yeah. I'm usually the first one trying to figure out what we can do next. 
Um, so I think my, I think being in tune with my emotions allows me to bypass the ones that I know are like painful. Yeah. It's a, it's, it's a fine line because it's on the one hand, it's like what this conversation doesn't need right now is one more negative person. Right. But on the other hand, we we're in the business of authenticity and that goes for us personally as well. And yeah. And complaining is a way that we bond with people. That's true. Um, but it can cross the line into yep. a sort of toxicity. So, you know, it's you want to maintain the credibility that, like, you know what? Something just happened and it sucked. And I'm going to admit that it sucks versus yep. like, hey, it all just died, but I got great news, everybody. <laughs> now we know what they don't want, you know? Yeah, you have to be, you have to be, I mean, you can't. Yeah, it's hard to get people on board with you without at least acknowledging it. But I have, you know, I've had the experience where, like, there's just like, so many times that great thing died and the next thing was always better. Yeah. And I, I hate that because it proves that you just got to keep going. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't, um, it doesn't give me, uh, any relief, uh, because I know I just deep down know when work dies, there's a better idea somewhere. I, I'll ask the question with others yeah. of, do you worry if you're too hard on people or too easy on people? But just based on your personality and the first 30 minutes we've talked, I, I feel like you're more like me. Like you, you love when people get along and when yes. the vibe is good and we're all moving in the same direction as a result of that, you know, do you worry that you're sometimes too easy on people? No, because I, I don't think I am. I, I want everyone to get along and I want everyone to be happy. And I'm also uh, I'm also quick to deliver bad news and I'm quick to be tough because uh, I know that that uh, a tough conversation will get us on the road to the happier, better place. So I actually um, so I actually, you know, I I I don't shy away from it. You know, I don't some people kind of avoid some of the tough conversations and I tend to want to get them over with right away because, um, you know, again, then we'll be for, we'll be faster on the road to the good stuff. Yeah. Um, but I don't, you know, I'm, I, I think it's always as a creative director, you want to figure out how hard to be on the work and I guess in turn the people, because you know, we're all so connected to the work we come up with as creatives. Um, but I think it's a constant assessment. It's, it's, you know, on a given week, I can feel the temperature of the agency. Are things moving? Are things selling? Are they in production? And when the temperature's right, then I, then I think my, uh, you know, my added, my, uh, you know, how, how tough or nice I'm being is, is working. So I think if things are at a standstill, I think you gotta, you gotta be hard on stuff. And if things are moving well, then okay, that's the, that's the right amount. So I think it's like, it's, it's all based on like what we have going and what, and, and what's in the process and where it is. And it's just, it's like, it feels like I'm feeling it out every yeah. day. Part of our job is failure. Do you have a favorite failure from your career? I do. Uh, I do. That I know that's your closing question, so I've prepared for that no, one. No, no. My closing question is different. Okay. This, that's is, a this late, one was ergonomically designed just for you. Okay. Well, it's a, it's a late it's a late question. It's and, a late um, uh, Yeah. So we, I worked at this agency, as I mentioned earlier, in Boston, Modernista, and we had uh, Napster as a client. And for the young listeners out there, Napster was the, the original uh, file sharing music site. Um, and you can help me maybe describe it. But basically, people would upload albums and other people would download them. And it was basically, it was basically stealing music. And, uh, it was and, the best. It was the best. I mean, you really like, I, uh, I know it's so fun. That was right around the time when like uh, high speed internet came out and you could like download an album in a minute. And, um, and when, you know, the artists and the labels started, uh, coming down on them and suing them, um, Sean Fanning, the founder said, uh, said, no, 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 this is not stealing music. It's sharing. Um, and that was, that was like the big soundbite. And eventually they did get shut down. And a few years later they relaunched and they were actually the first subscription. Like their model is basically what, uh, what Spotify and, uh, Apple's music is now. It's basically... 10 bucks a month for unlimited downloads at that time it was downloads, not streams yeah. of, uh, of 1.5 million songs. So we, when I worked at Modernista, we had the account and I had this idea that made it like all the way. The idea was Napster was founded on like quote unquote sharing. So what if we took the entire $5 million marketing budget and we just made a list of bounties and basically we shared the media budget, uh, with, with people. So if you got called into a, to a local radio show and said 1.5 million songs, unlimited downloads, Napster, uh, we'd pay you 250 bucks. 
If you held a sign that said the same thing on college game day, 1500 bucks. If you crashed this, that, and we basically did a list of like, you know, all the different places. If you could get this shown on other people's media, um, we'd pay you. And, uh, and it was called crashster.com. And we mm. built the whole website. We had a list of bounties all the way to like, if you crash the Grammys, it's $1 million. If you say that the, the Napster line um, uh, from the space station, it's $5 million. Um, and, uh, and that we, we did it. We had lawyers and it was all set up. And the CMO was um, at a board meeting and it was going to launch like two weeks later. And he decided just for the fun of it to show the board of Napster this crazy idea. And he showed it and the whole board was like, no way. And so the whole thing was like set, ready to go, website built, lawyers signed, like uh, insurance on all the money and all that kind of stuff. And uh, the whole board killed it. So oh. I was devastated. Uh, so it was so a pretty you, good one. You, you have to go through that stuff so that when, when work dies, you can look at creatives who are taking cues from you and go, dude, I promise you we're going to get through this. Yeah. You know, this is, you're going to, you're going to tell, you're going to tell this story back fondly one day, maybe sure. not today, maybe not this year, but one day you will look back on this moment fondly. Yeah. It's not, um, you know, it's not the end of the world. Yeah. Plus I was like 23 then I had like no work in my portfolio and I was about to do like, a, it was like a crispiny thing. Right. Yeah. You know, it was like a thing that you guys would have done. Um, so yeah. Another part of our job is we talked about Facebook. Some of our job is seeing the work that our friends are doing on Facebook and feeling super jealous. Yeah. Are you a person who is motivated by that jealousy? I know you, you sure. pay attention to what's going on in the yep. industry. You see ideas that you love. How do you, What's the visceral response to those things? Are you able to be happy for people? I am. Uh, I am. I am able to... Um, I am able to, to be both envious and happy for someone at the same time. And I think you have to be to be a, a healthy person in advertising. So, you know, when, uh, you know, when someone, you know, um, does an amazing film or some, yeah, some kind of activation that you only wish you could sell or you even had a client for, um, the first feeling is like seething jealousy of, of, uh, uh, all the hype around it and all the joy and the fact that you did it. And, uh, and also happiness for them. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. I don't know, like I, uh, right. Can you be, I think you can be, uh, you can oh, yeah. be envious of work and happy for someone. It's our industry's version of what's, you know, so lovely and what's so wrong about social media, in my opinion, which is like, you've heard the saying that comparison is the thief of joy. Right. And so it's this place where it feels really good to share work that you've made, that you're proud of, that you want people who you admire and respect to see and comment on and praise you. And that part feels really good. And it's also a place where you're going to go and see, even if you think you're doing well, there's definitely someone out there who's doing a little bit better. And it's the place yeah. to like go and check in on who's doing better than you and yep. compare yourself to them. If you don't have the discipline to, to you know, not look at things in those unhealthy terms, but it's it's really hard not to sometimes. Well, like I mean, I but I think you have. To, I think that that gives me the fight. Like I, every year after Can, Can does have a, a great value for me because I do I do go and I do look at all the exhibitions and I look at all the work, and I come back. I go through like a range of emotions, but I usually leave kind of pissed. Yeah, you know, I feel like you know, what, you know, look at all this great stuff and what you know how you know. I've been flown Where am out I here that? to. I've been flown out here to applaud others. I've been flown out here, and I'm looking at all this stuff, and I'm like, I love it. It's amazing, and it's, uh, and somehow, like in the, uh, you know, somewhere over the ocean, it like turns into like energy. You know, yeah. like I do come back energized through my jealousy. Um, you know, and it's yeah. not like, but it's not a competitive spirit because I don't, you know, can, you know, could my agency take on, you know, Adam and Eve London like on a good year? I know those guys, I love. I'm. I'm so envious of everything they do. It just fuels me to yeah. push us. But it's it's more like I uh, I just push off from that and try to find whatever we can do. Yeah, envy is sort of cheap fuel that resembles inspiration and can sort of be, you know, there's an alchemy where it turns into inspiration. Um, but yeah, I've heard someone say brilliantly, like they, th I've heard someone say brilliantly that, you know, many go to can to get drunk but the people who are doing their jobs right go to can to get sober. <laughs> That's true. I mean, it is true. It's like, you know what it is too? It gives you, it, it actually does, like I, you know, I'm a, a consumer of, um, of creativity online and yeah, I, I love to look at the work, but when you can see it all together, I mean, Canned is like a supermarket of creative ideas. Yeah. And that's when you can really clearly see like what is, 
you know, what makes things like the really iconic things. And you, when you can look at all of it side by side, you do get that perspective that when you see it piecemeal throughout the year, you don't. Yeah. yeah. So you, you mentioned your wife, Lindsay, is part of the senior leadership team at McCann. So like, are you a spy for her or is she <laughs> a spy for you? You know what? The, the beauty of it is we have like, um, because there's so much stuff we probably shouldn't talk about, we don't talk about work, which is phenomenal. So, so, and I think otherwise one of us would be inclined, uh, we do talk about, we, we talk actually philosophically a lot though about the, she came up in account management and I came up in creative and she's definitely given me a lot of tips to work better with account people. I certainly as a young creative, I think young creatives um, are mad when their work isn't sold or mad when you know someone tells them they can't present something. But I think I've always deeply empathized with the craft of account service because my wife is a passionate account person. Yeah. Um, but there's, um, but there is some good, there is some good sharing, like, um, you know, you know, so, you know, she may say, oh, a creative did X, Y, Z. And that really, that really upset, that offended me or that was, you know, messed up. And I'll say, no, here's, here's why, here's the reason why, you know, he or she did that. And then she'll just, so I can give her the creative point of view. And in defense of it. the creatives. In yeah. defense of the creatives. And then, you know, um, if, uh, you know, and not in any recent memory, but, you know, I've had like one or two spats with, with account people, account partners. And, um, one or you've had one or two. Spots. I've had a few. I had a few. Uh, the the best. Uh, one of my favorite things is um, I was feuding with with an account director um, on an unnamed account at an unnamed agency in New York, and I wrote like a really long email, and I, it was you know I'm, this is a mistake, and we shouldn't have done this, and now we're doing this, and I don't think it's blah 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 blah. Um, and then I just handed the laptop to my wife, and I said, "Now make it hurt." Because I was like, geez, whatever an account person would not want to hear about, like, you know, what they did, like, put that in there for me. So well, she like, let me help you out. Delete this whole thing. Pick <laughs> yeah. up the phone. Actually. And uh, have the courage to have a five minute conversation. Uh, she's a- like, get in a shouting match instead. Uh, no, no. She actually, she's, you know, she's also a little more mad. Like, again, I think, you know, you know, when I said I earlier that I don't, I don't uh, lose my cool too much and stuff like that. That's a, that's a newer thing. Yeah. You know, I think she helped me with, I think I was more of a temperamental, hot-headed creative early in my career. Yeah. And I think she was always kind of calming me down and reminding me that it wasn't of much use. I love so. receiving the occasional 1,500-word coming <laughs> in hot email only because the second I start reading it, I, I, I just, that's how I solved all my problems in the first seven or eight years of my yeah. career. It was just like, well, I have a strongly worded email for you, sir, so just <laughs> sit back and... This won't be a conversation. This I'll be doing the talking and you'll be doing the reading. Yeah. And um, and it's amazing how much less tough people get when you just reply and go, you know, you want to rather than indulge the, the the piping hot email with a fifteen hundred word response of your own, you just write like, Hey, can you call me? And the person on the phone is just way nicer. Totally different yeah. than the person who emailed you. And again, I I don't say this with any air of superiority. I only recognize it because I, I I know it so well in myself. I mean, isn't it better? I mean, isn't it so much better to sidestep that shit yeah. and just get to uh, get to the solution? Like it's, you know, I mean, arguing and, and, um, and fighting is, is draining, yeah. you know, I mean, uh, I'd rather, I'd rather, you know, drain my, uh, battery pack trying to figure out how to do something great. Yeah. And the final question is, uh, the one that got away. What's that idea that you haven't been able to sell it for whatever reason, but it's just, it's just, it's stuck in your gut. Man, I, you know, I don't, I was thinking about this one really hard and I don't got it. You know, I don't, um, for whatever reason, if it didn't make it, I must have convinced myself. I, I must have somehow to make peace with, with uh, work that didn't make it. I must have convinced myself it's not that good. I'm not saving it cause like I, I have a filing cabinet. Um, there's not one that got away. In that case, I'm going to end this by just opening up the floor for one minute and allowing you to tell the world what's your problem with the brand Untuck It. I've got, you know, I, I have, this is, uh, I have to be careful. I have to nip this in the bud because it is, it is starting to define me. Um, I just, I saw that uh, there was like a manifesto commercial where the, uh, the CEO, founder and owner of Untuck It is walking down the street and he, he talks about how, you know, he, he identified a problem in the world, um, and and uh, and it's that men couldn't uh, purchase uh, dress shirts designed to be worn untucked, uh, untucked, and he solved it. And I just found that so offensive, with all the problems in the world, um, that I just really stuck on it. I also think, you know, if you're gonna wear like a dress shirt untucked, like be a man and wear a dress shirt untucked. You know, you're wearing the shit improperly. 
Chris, I'm really happy you're not British, and I really enjoyed <laughs> this conversation. I was going to say me too, and then that's not good. No, I'm, <laughs> I'm, uh, but I'm happy. I'm, I'm happy. I'm not what you thought I was. It was really good talking to you, man. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Thank you to Chris. Thank you to Jeff Fiorello, our producer at JSM Music. Thank you to The One Club. And if you're enjoying the pod, please share it with a friend. Until then, we'll talk again soon. Peace.